You're listening to episode 17 of the Room to Grow podcast. I'm Emily Goff, a holistic nutritionist and women's lifestyle coach living in Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. And here on the Room to Grow podcast, I bring you thoughts or guests in areas of nutrition, mindset, lifestyle, and entrepreneurship that will help you gain confidence so you can stress less and elevate yourself to create the life you love. We are not here to do things perfectly, but we are here to learn from each other and to grow with lots of self-love and compassion along the way. Let's get started. Hey there, welcome back to the Room to Grow podcast, and I have such a special guest today. I This is such a, a full circle moment for me to have Dr. Jade Tita, who is an integrative physician. He's a two-time author, uh, actually multiple times, sought after expert in the realm of metabolism and self-development, and he's been doing all this stuff for the last 25 years, studying strength and conditioning and hormonal metabolism and the psychology actually of change and success. And Dr. Jade is, he knows his stuff inside and out. He is a complete and utter professional expert and you are going to get so much out of this interview. The reason why this is a full circle moment for me is because I started teaching bootcamp classes years ago. You might remember me telling the story before for a, a local company. And in order to teach for them, uh, they had mandatory reading, which was Dr. Jade's first book, uh, The Metabolic Effect Diet, which is linked in the show notes. And it completely changed how I viewed exercise, nutrition, building a, a lifestyle, figuring out what works for our unique bodies. All of this was really first brought to me by Dr. Jade. So this is just, I, I, I cannot quite put into words how odd this is <laughs> that I've ended up in a position where I'm now able to interview someone like him. So I am so excited to share this interview with you. There is, it is absolutely chock full of information. So I'm not even going to go on for much longer because I want you to get the absolute most out of this. We really talk about a lot of different types of stress and differentiating good stress from the not so good how to optimize your metabolism, figuring out what works best for our unique bodies, how to exercise and move in a way that will leave you energized, that you can build a lifestyle around all of this stuff. There is so much amazing, amazing information in here. And I know that you're going to be as excited as I am, or or hopefully by the time you're done listening. So I will not hold things up any longer and let's get going. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm so, so grateful for you taking the time. <laughs> You're too sweet, Emily. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Oh my goodness. Well, I was, uh, I was just saying to Jay right before we jumped on that I was posting in the, in the Room to Grow podcast group and I didn't say who I was interviewing. I just said, here are some areas of expertise of my, of my next guest and uh, what would you guys like me to focus on? And everyone was like, are you interviewing Jade? <laughs> <laughs> that's so, that, yeah, that's really sweet, you guys. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. I, I first came across you years ago when I started teaching boot camp classes for a, a little uh, local company. And they, at the time, they based their workouts around metabolic effect style workouts. And your first book, uh, Jade is a, a two-time published author, author um, was required reading. So I read it and my mind was just blown. It, it totally revolutionized uh, how I thought about nutrition and fitness and, and the entire thing. And then I started following uh, Jill Coleman and then I was in Best of You last year with Jill. So it's funny, you've like, you've completely, just the, that one uh, that one instance years ago has completely sort of changed my direction. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it kind of amazing when we go about, we go about doing our work and doing the things that we love and just being passionate about it and we can touch other people in that way. Just kind of always blows me away that that's that's kind of how that works so yeah that's kind of neat it's neat to hear that story I'm always you know sort of totally flattered when I hear those kind of stories it really is amazing the online space is uh, has just provided is a lot to be a lot to be grateful for that's for sure <laughs> well tell us all about you I, I have so much respect for you and, and everything that you do tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up here today because I know you've changed directions a couple times too and uh, and you certainly have it just an incredible amount of, of knowledge uh, that I'm really excited to, to dive into with you today. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, probably the place to start, you know, it's funny. I mean, I was, the best way I like to describe it, the most, uh, you know, 
forgiving way to describe it, I guess. I was this arrogant, sort of lean, you know, ego-driven male in my 20s who also personal trained, you know. And, and when I say that, you know, I'm kind of poking fun a little bit, but not, not really. I mean, I was, you know, sort of, um, you know, the, one of these people who just thought health and fitness was super easy because it came easy to me. And uh, then I started running into clients, mostly women, but men too, mostly women, because women are typically the people you deal with in that industry. I mean, they, they tend to be way more proactive than men, kept telling me, you know, you can't treat me and train me like, you know, a, a man, you know, and I just didn't understand that. And then through sort of a series of unfortunate or fortunate, I actually see it as fortunate now events, I ran into several clients that sort of changed that for me, but most importantly, and probably, um, you know, most, most of what happened to me was I ran into my own health issues. I ended up, uh, you know, through a, I won't go into details, but I basically was working like crazy through medical school and paying my way through school and just, you know, burning the candle at both ends and ended up with uh, diagnosing myself with uh, hypothyroid. I gained like 30 pounds in three months. And all of a sudden, I went from this lean, arrogant, know-it-all dude in my 20s to sort of in my 30s being this, you know, sort of formerly fit fat guy. And, <laughs> and I kind of had to figure that out. And it also made me wake up to the fact that, wow, there's more to this than just eating good and training hard, which I've always done. Even when I was, you know, um, in that that time period where I gained all that weight. And so that triggered me into like looking at metabolism in a much, much deeper way. And so I'm grateful for those experiences. But if you want to get an idea of um, sort of what I do, you know, I had to, in order to overcome my own stuff and overcome, you know, the patients and clients things that I was working with, I really had to develop not just an understanding of diet and exercise, but a real understanding of actually how the metabolism works and functions and and what it means because uh, you know when you're young all you need to do is eat and exercise that's all you really need to do and then you know through diseases and through stress and through life accumulations and all those things we start to change and see that it's not that simple and so I went on you know sort of a, a journey of figuring this out and to be honest with you I don't think I have it figured out still when metabolism is so complex and we know so little so we're always figuring out more stuff, but I was able to, you know, sort of um, make a difference for myself and make a difference for a lot of my clients when I have this new understanding. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea of where I came from. I, I had a lot of hard won sort of uh, understandings about metabolism that changed everything for me as well, which obviously turned into several books and, and the work that I did. Yes, definitely. Well, and it's, it's interesting that you, that you mentioned metabolism too, because I think that there's just, I mean, you, again, you know this better than anyone, there's just so much confusion about metabolism and there are so many factors that affect metabolism. There's no way we could ever even touch on all of them in the next hour, much less the next week. But <laughs> what do you find are sort of uh, the, the biggest misconceptions about something like the metabolism? Well, you know, I think you just said it, Emily. I think it, it really, and I said it too, it's basically this idea that everyone thinks it is diet and exercise. They really... They really do. And even, it's funny, it's so drilled into us. Even I, even I default to that, right? Because that's something we can do. We can control what we put in our mouths to some degree, and we can go work out. And it feels like when we're doing those things that we're making a dent or we're making progress. And the truth of the matter is doing those things alone is not enough. And doing them in the wrong way can actually lead us into this sort of metabolic two steps forward, three steps back type of thing that many people get into. And it's funny and it's deceiving because it does work. Diet and exercise approaches do work for most people when they are young. And then they stop working. And, and I don't want people to hear me wrong. It's not that you don't have to know what to eat and exercise. You absolutely do. But there is way more to know than just that. And so most people, and I think we all can sort of appreciate this, when they get stuck, they get stuck and they get confused because they're like, well, I'm doing everything right. And by doing everything right, they mean I'm following the right diet that I heard was the right diet. And I'm following an exercise plan and I'm being consistent. Why aren't things changing? And that is really, I think, what most people are dealing with. They, their metabolism does not do what they want it to do because the metabolism does not function 
like they think it does. And at a very simple level, it really is most of us even still, and, and maybe you even, those of you listening to this, you maybe have even heard me say this or other people say this, but most of us are still acting as if it is just a calorie equation. Now, don't get me wrong, calories are absolutely the most important thing when it comes to losing weight and burning body fat. You have to achieve calorie deficits. However, doing that in the wrong way and approaching it with sort of a harder approach, like, you know, uh, no pain, no gain, and eat as little as you can and exercise as much as you can, actually ends up having the reverse effect that you want because of the way the metabolism actually works. It more works like a boomerang or a seesaw or anything that sort of pushes back against you. Now, once you understand that, you start asking the question, why does the metabolism do that? And you start to understand that the metabolism is not there to help you lose weight and you know, sort of be at your beck and call. The metabolism is there to help keep you balanced and healthy. It is essentially responding to stress all kinds of stress, whether you're registering that emotionally or not. And that is why people get this wrong because too, too much dieting and too much exercise can be a stress. And it is often a stress to many, many people without them even knowing it. And I would say that is the biggest problem that most people have because they don't actually know when they're going too far with diet and exercise and what else needs to be done for the metabolism to respond the way they want it to. Absolutely. And I mean, that was sort of one of my next questions was kind of leads into that, which is how do we know when we're stressed? Because there's so many people out there that are so frustrated with their, with their lack of weight loss. And even if they're being super disciplined and they're doing things right, I know that you've talked about um, what you call the, the banana effect before where some of those, those times, like you were talking about before, where you were in a state of, of high stress and avoiding foods like bananas because you thought they were too high in carbs, only to find yourself swinging the other direction um, and you know, indulging in something that, that you were trying to avoid, something uh, super high calorie that you were trying to avoid before. And it just seemed really confusing. Can you explain how, how being like, incredibly disciplined can actually kind of work against us? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, it's funny. We have studies to tell us this as well. We, we definitely know that diet deprivation will raise stress hormones, stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline and noradrenaline. And by the way, you know, this is just a, a kind of pet peeve of mine, so I'll clue everyone in here. Cortisol, we hear a lot about cortisol and stress hormones. You can't feel cortisol. Cortisol doesn't make you feel stressed, right? It doesn't make you anxious, Adrenaline is what makes you anxious and things like that, right? So like when you're at night and you're sort of lying in bed and your mind is uh, running around like crazy, that's adrenaline, not cortisol. And so, um, you know, you can have cortisol surging through your body without feeling anxious, which is why I bring that up, right? So, but if you are feeling anxious and if you are waking up at night in the middle of the night, you can pretty much guarantee if adrenaline is around, cortisol is around with it. So, the point I'm trying to make here is that your body has certain biofeedback sensations that will clue you in to whether you are stressed or not, um, whether you're emotionally happy or not. So fragmented sleep, and what I mean by fragmented sleep is you know, waking up every couple hours or feeling like you're in, you're half conscious while you're sleeping. This is a form of biofeedback that you're under stress. Um, hypervigilance when you're constantly thinking and worrying about things. This means being jumpy, right? Being on edge. This is probably um, you know, something that will tell you about stress. One thing that's not popular to talk about, but it's one of my favorite things to mention because it's all sort of, we all register this, and especially for women, but men too, sexual function, libido, all of that kind of stuff absolutely will register in stress because think about it, if the metabolism is a stress barometer, especially for women, one of the things it's trying to measure is can I and do I want to, to reproduce? And if you have no libido, no sex drive at all, or, and your menses is, uh, you know, sort of irregular or prolonged, or you're getting heavy bleedings and all of those kinds of things, this tells you you're under stress, whether you are happy or not. The big ones that I really like to talk about mood, obviously, if you're feeling anxious or depressed, that's kind of typical, but also hunger and cravings, and energy, 
and uh, exercise performance and exercise recovery. All of these things will clue you into whether or not you are stressed out, whether you are happy or not. And so here's the other thing, by the way, that is the most frustrating thing. It's also, if you are not uh, able to lose weight, even though you know that you're in a calorie deficit, this is uh, probably an indication that your metabolism is um, a little stressed out and does not want to do what you want it to do. All of these things can be uh, an issue. Actually, specifically with women, too, one of the things that we, we know, and this is, you'll have to kind of picture this, but they talk a lot about in the research of uh, people who are hypervigilant and over-responders to stress. And one of the things that happens, especially in women with this, is they will have, they will develop a high waist to hip ratio, which means they will store belly fat. And this happens whether or not they are thin or whether they are overweight, which oftentimes is um, interesting for women that I actually put in my, in my program, a program for specifically for women called Metabolic Renewal, and I took the actual image that's in the study and put it in that book so that women could actually see what I'm talking about here. So absolutely, if you're measuring around your midsection as a woman or your hourglass shape as a woman starts to disappear, again, this is an indication that you are dealing with probably some metabolic stress. And so you have to start paying attention to how you feel. By the way, um, cravings for sweets, fat, salty, alcohol, any kind of high, highly palatable food, we now suspect that cortisol, think cortisol C, craving C, that cortisol is connected to cravings. Cortisol, we know, decreases the motivation centers of the brain and increases the activity of the reward centers of the brain. So when you are stressed, you're going to be craving Haagen-Dazs rather than salad greens. So if you're the kind of person that gets home from work at 5.30, has all these fresh cut-up greens and chicken breasts that you prepared the night before, yet then you jump in the car and go get a pint of Haagen-Dazs, that is, a, that is telling you that your metabolism is under stress. Well, it, there is so much to cover there. That's, that's incredible. One of the things I want to mention is that I'm, I'm also really glad that you brought up um, libido in women because this is something that I feel like, I don't know if it just comes from sort of old folklore or, or what, that it, it's almost just considered standard for women at a certain age to have their libido decrease. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that what, what needs to happen is that there needs to be more normalization around the fact that that isn't normal and that there are actually things that we can do about that. I mean, what are some of the ways that, that you suggested people to decrease stress in their lives? Because I know everyone says, you know, like bubble baths and, and massages and stuff, but there are obviously other ways to, to go about it. Well, you know, it's funny, since we're talking about sex, sex is one of the major ways to decrease stress. Again, I always bring this up and it always is kind of taboo, but we definitely have one thing as humans that is probably the biggest stress reducer on the planet. And it also feels great too, and that's orgasm. So orgasm is absolutely um, a huge stress reliever. Whether you have a libido or not, this is something that you're going to want to partake in. Cuddling is another great thing, whether it's with pets or a romantic partner. So pets and cuddling and touch all lower stress. Meditation, yes, but most of us don't do that. One of the biggest and the ones that I talk about all the time, and I will continue to talk about it because all the research is there, and I will tell you this is the one single thing that has made more difference, primarily for my female clients versus my male clients, but this makes the hugest difference. And it is very simply slow, relaxing walking and lots of it, lots and lots of movement. This is the only type of activity that simultaneously will reduce cortisol and sensitize your body to insulin. So we talk about this hormonal effect. It essentially is very sort of woo-saw creating. It basically makes you relax. I'm like, oh, woo-saw, I'm relaxing. <laughs> That's what walking does, especially in green settings. In fact, the Japanese call it Shinrin-yoku. They have a name for it and essentially translates into forest bathing. And so it even works better when you're doing it in green settings. Classical music. Music is a huge one, and it's a great one because it's very passive. So you can sit at the end of the, of the day and plug in your headset and put on some relaxing spa-like music or classical music or, you know, and relaxing music. As a matter of fact, I don't know how many of you use Spotify, but on my Spotify, I have a list 
of some of the most relaxing songs. <laughs> I think that that is called Relax Like a Mofo on my, <laughs> on my Spotify. So if you go to Jade Tita's Spotify, Jade Anthony Tita's Spotify, and grab that uh, relax, um, you know, sort of um, playlist, you'll find some of the most relaxing music via studies on that playlist that works really well. So music is another one of my, my favorites. And so there are a lot of things that we can do besides just go to a spa and meditate. Walking is huge. Sex is fantastic. And by the way, this goes for men and women. One of the biggest things to do when you are dealing with low libido is to force yourself, believe it or not, to just get naked with your romantic partner and cuddle. And that oftentimes leads to you know, intercourse and orgasm, and it just is a great way. And even if you don't have intercourse and orgasm, it's a great way to just relax. If you don't have a sexual partner, then of course you can, you know, you can basically have an orgasm by yourself. You can uh, go get a massage from someone to get some of the touch of that. And the other one that I'll say here that's kind of counterintuitive that I love is um, contrast or hydrotherapies, um, both hyperthermia, meaning hot water baths, and uh, hypothermia, meaning cold water, and especially the contrast between hot and cold. So you might say, well, Jade, how do I do this? Well, you can go hot in the shower, and then a cold blast, and then back to hot again, and then back to cold, and then back to hot. And what this does is it's actually very, very relaxing once you get over the shock of the cold water. And the cold only needs to be just a minute, just to take your breath away. And then you go back to hot until you get hot enough to where you want the cold blast again. And you go back and forth. This is very tonifying, for lack of a better term, to the nervous system and is, helps to balance the parasympathetic and sympathetic arms of the nervous system, which really needs to be done to help the metabolism feel like it's not in starvation. And by the way, when I say that, I know that's probably confusing for some people, but when the metabolism registers stress, it really goes back to, it doesn't matter what the stress is, it doesn't matter if you're in a fight with your significant other, you have a deadline at work, you're stuck in traffic, you're emotionally upset due to grief or whatever, the metabolism would normally register that kind of stuff as a starvation response because that's the stress that it encountered for millions and millions and millions of years as we developed um, as humans. And so that's what begins to happen. And so that's what the connection is. I know it may not seem like listening to music will have anything to do with your cheesecake craving, but it absolutely can. I, I know it seems like walking in the woods may not, you know, do anything for your pasta craving, but it absolutely can, right? And so these are the things that people don't want to do. As a matter of fact, if you'll allow me, Emily, real quick, and I know I'm talking a lot, but I'll give you guys my 4M framework for metabolism that I think is huge, if you can remember this. It goes like this, mindfulness, is at the base of the pyramid. It's the most important thing. It's everything we just talked about. I call it rest-based living, which essentially means build into your lifestyle all these things that will relax you, right? All the things we just talked about, build them into your routines. Think of them as almost like workouts, walking, sex, spa time, um, time with pets, time with loved ones. But actually, one thing I didn't mention that's wonderful here is creative pursuits. If you're a painter, if you're someone who plays an instrument, if you're someone who likes to write or do poetry or anything like that, they've even shown that doodling and coloring can lower stress and kind of uh, reset us uh, in, our, in our stress response. So mindfulness comes first. Next is movement. Now, I know within mindfulness, there's movement, there's walking, but it's so powerful that it really needs its own category. Movement, which basically means walking and activities of daily living, is huge. It's 20, 15 to 20% of our changeable metabolism. So if you're not walking, then you're probably not going to be getting results. This is the reason why if Emily and, and I move to a major city like New York City, where do you live, by the way, Emily? Are you in uh, Hamilton, Ontario. Yeah, I'm up okay. in Canada. <laughs> okay, so, so and I'm in Los Angeles, right? So I, when I moved here to Santa Monica from North Carolina, Santa Monica is a very walking-based city. So I lost 10 pounds when I first got here, like right away, just from walking around, just because I was moving way more. We've all heard stories like this, right? You know, you go to Paris, you see the Parisians are walking around a lot, New York City, you know, walking is huge. Mindfulness, movement, then meals, then meals. 
And by the way, here's something that's counterintuitive. Cutting carbohydrates down to nothing is a stress for many, many people. I'll say that again. Cutting carbohydrates down to nothing can be a stress for many people. So this can tell you a little bit why for some people, especially mostly women who have a more stress-sensitive system than men, will not do well always on strict keto diets and intermittent fasting protocols and all this kind of stuff. So you want to get your macronutrients, your protein, your carbs, your fat, enough but not too much, especially when it comes to carbs. Carbs are one of those things where you've got to really find the Goldilocks point. And then finally, and last, the very base or the very top of the pyramid is metabolics, what I call metabolics, anything that, that moves the metabolism. This would be exercise, supplements, drugs. And so you can see that this is the way you want to prioritize things. So when people tell me, they go, hey, you know, I, um, I'm doing everything right and I'm not seeing results. I almost always say, okay, well, tell me what's, what you're doing right. Well, I'm eating this diet and doing this exercise program. They don't mention anything about movement or mindfulness. And to me, that's the first place we start, and it almost always starts getting them better results than they were getting. Well, I love that. There's so much incredible information there. And, and I mean, even the – it's interesting because the rest-based living, you've also incorporated that into your training programs, your, your actual physical fitness training programs in terms of like rest for success, basically push until you can rest until you can't is what you're, you're usually most well known for. Can you Absolutely. explain a little bit how that looks? Because I feel like when people think high intensity, they think, you know, like CrossFit and uh, like workouts where they have to, to push until they, they just, they're totally dead and they might even end up injured. Like that can be a huge problem for a lot of people. And then people just avoid exercise altogether. Yeah. Well, you know, I came up with this concept because of the, the fact that I started seeing that high intensity interval training and some of this uh, CrossFit style stuff. And I saw that this stuff just works fantastic. Okay. It really works well when it works, but it can also easily be overdone. Right. And so I was like, well, how do we keep someone from overdoing it? Well, we can individualize our workout programs by simply saying, you know what, you push until you can't push anymore. Basically, go until you are completely uncomfortable, you're out of breath, you're burning, the weight is too heavy, and then you stop. Now, the, the clock doesn't stop, the workout timing continues to go, but you stop and you rest. And you rest until you feel like you can exert the same intensity again. And then you repeat that. So you push until you can't push and then you rest until you can push. And this came out of research that I was looking at in cardiovascular rehab centers where they were using high-intensity interval training. And I was amazed because I was like, how the hell are they using high-intensity interval training on individuals who have gone through a heart transplants and things like that? And what they were seeing is that they were actually getting better results when they let individuals determine how hard they push and how much they rest. What we actually see is that for many people, in fact, I would say most people, when you give them free control over their workouts and you say, you know what, I want you to go as hard as you feel comfortable going, and then I want you to rest whenever you need it, and then get back into the workout right where you left off whenever you're ready. What ends up happening is most people end up pushing harder, right? But they also end up being safer. This is very different than a trainer saying, keep going, keep going, don't stop, don't stop. Give me one more, give me three more, give me five more. That's going to easily burn someone out. But if you know that you're in complete control and you can stop and rest whenever you want for as long as you want until you are ready to continue, that's an entirely different thing. And so you can kind of think of this as it gives you all the really good benefits of high-intensity interval training without the specific prescribed work and rest periods. Like, for example, a high-intensity interval of one minute on, one minute off basically means that you have to go, you have to push hard for one minute, then you only get one minute to rest. What I'm saying is maybe you go for 30 minutes and rest for a minute and 30. Maybe you go 45 seconds and rest for three minutes. Maybe you go for a minute and only rest 30 seconds if you're super fit. But what this allows you to do is completely individualize your training and keeps you from overdoing it, keeps you from getting pushing the metabolism into a stressful state. This is a much easier way 
for you to individualize your intense exercise because you do need to train hard to get the metabolism to respond. There's no question about that. But you also need to train safe. This allows you to do both. And, and I mean, there's a big difference between fat loss and, and weight loss as well. And what you're well known for is, is fat loss. And I mean, we can get into that as well. But the other thing is, is that so many people fall into the trap of believing that exercising more often, so not even necessarily more intensely, but at least more often, and eating less is the only way to lose weight. And I know that we also covered uh, like calorie deficit as, as well, but in your book, Lose Weight Here, you and, and your brother, Dr. Keone, kind of coined this eat more, exercise more versus eat less, exercise less, which I mean, it seems totally counterintuitive, but it works. And I, I would love for you to explain how you approach that as well, because it makes it so easy and attainable, I feel like, for people to incorporate it into their lives without it being super complicated, which is really the key to consistency. Yeah. I, I, well, I'll tell you what, it's really interesting, right? Because so we all hear eat less, exercise more, right? And in a sense, and, and, you know, and the opposite of that is sort of eat more, exercise less. So, right, we, we basically live, most of us, in, until we learn a different way, we basically live swinging wildly between the dieting world, which is eat less, exercise more, and the couch potato world, which is eat more, exercise less. And we kind of think that these are the only two things. Either I'm, I'm working out a lot and not eating a lot, or I'm eating a lot and not working out. And the truth of the matter is, if you look at the people who we love the most in terms of we look at we want to achieve their bodies, those people are athletes, right? Athletic physiques are what we all want to aspire to. These are, the, these are the things that we all celebrate, like, wow, look at her or his body. They are very athletic looking. And what's interesting about that to me is that when you look at the way athletes eat and exercise, you will not find one of them that eats less and exercises more. What they do is they eat more and they exercise more. In other words, they eat to fuel exercise. They eat more and they exercise more. And on the other side of that, there's also sort of these people that we know Typically, the traditional Europeans, I always like to, to think about it as Paris because I love Paris. It's actually my favorite city. And if you go to Paris, you'll see the most beautiful people. It feels like if you're in a J. Crew catalog, the most beautiful men, the most beautiful women. They're just, they're just gorgeous, right? And they're, none of them look like they are you know, lifting weights, but they walk a lot and they eat very sparingly. In other words, they eat less and exercise less. And so... I started to understand sort of very early on, if you look at hunter-gatherers and traditional Europeans, they're not exercising a ton. They may go on a hunt or two during the week, but typically they're just moving a lot and they're not eating a lot. Or if you look at athletes, they're exercising a lot and they're eating a lot. They're never doing this eat less, exercise more, and this eat more, exercise less for long. And what's interesting about this is kind of semantics, right? Because think about it this way. If you're eating less and exercising more and you subscribe to that dieting mentality, what happens is you can easily create 500 calorie deficits to 1,000 calorie deficits in a day, right? And you think that's good because you're like, oh, well, I need to create these big, huge calorie deficits so I can lose weight fast. That's what we all think. Well, the metabolism looks at that and says, oh, my God, I just got a 500 calorie deficit, 1,000 calorie deficit. I'm not going to be able to do this. Hopefully, this will go away after two or three days. And that's why you feel pretty good for the first two or three days on a diet. You know, after you get through that first sort of day and you get the psychological satisfaction, you're like, oh, this is good. And you feel pretty good for two, three days. And you're telling them, oh, my God, I lost this weight. I feel so good. And then somewhere between three and seven days of doing that, the metabolism smacks you in the face and says, okay, I've had enough of this. And here's some hunger. And here's some cravings. And here's some shitty energy. And here now you can't sleep. And next thing you know, you're binging on cheesecake. What happens with that approach is that the calorie deficit is too large and so the metabolism starts to fight back against you however when you're eating less and exercising less or eating more and exercising more with eating less and exercising less you're creating a slight calorie deficit with food not with exercise but with food but it's a slight calorie deficit maybe 100 200 calories and so the metabolism doesn't fight back against you and with eat more, exercise more, you're using your exercise to create the calorie deficit. But still, it's a slight calorie deficit, maybe 100, 200 calories, not 
500 to 800 to 1,000 calorie deficit. And this then creates a situation that is far more stable and less stressful for the metabolism. And so I like to essentially say that the number one thing that we want to do with our metabolism, all of us, is we want to develop and keep a flexible metabolism. Think about the metabolism as, you guys know, you know, a rubber band, you know how like if a rubber band gets cold, you put it in ice water, it gets, you know, kind of wrinkled and you try to, to you know, bring it open and it will snap, right? Because it's not flexible. That's like being on the Weight Watchers diet for the, all your life. Your metabolism just becomes so inflexible, it's not going to do anything anymore. To make it more flexible, what you want to do is you want to learn to move back and forth between these four different metabolic toggles living most of the time in eat less, exercise less if you're not someone who loves to exercise, or eat more, exercise more if you are someone that loves to exercise. And then every once in a while, for no more than a few weeks, going into eat less, exercise more, or eat more, exercise less. Believe it or not, eat more, exercise less, the couch potato model, done for a weekend after you've been you know, working out for you know, and eating more and exercising more like an athlete for three months is not going to hurt you. It's that if you do that for four weeks that it gets you in trouble. Eat less, exercise more is also not going to hurt you if it's done for two weeks to four weeks, but it is going to become a problem if you do it for four years, like most people try to do, or 40 years. And so learning these other things, this eat less, exercise less approach and this eat more, exercise more approach makes it so that now whenever you go back to eat less, exercise more, it will really work for you. And by the way, there's many different ways to eat less, exercise less. doesn't matter. You could be a vegan or vegetarian and do eat less, exercise less. The keto diet is an eat less, exercise less type approach. Fasting is an eat less, exercise less type approach. The reason I say that is because when you're cutting down macronutrients that intensely, cutting out carbs and reducing food and all that kind of stuff, you don't really want to be doing crazy exercise. And so many people who are advanced at this might be listening to me and saying, but Jay, this is just common sense. I do this all the time. When I work out, I eat more that day. And when I don't work out, I fast or I don't eat much that day. And that's exactly right. So many people have figured this out intuitively. It's not that it's some you know, magical thing. It's just something that I, I am pointing out to help you understand what you need to do to get your metabolism back online. Well, and people getting really honest with themselves about how much they're eating, if they're not eating enough or if they're eating too much, I think is, is really a big key to this too, because we can have this sort of mental image about what we think we're eating. And I'm not one to, to you know, push people towards uh, calorie counting at all. It's not really my jam because I, I think people can start to get obsessive about it. But it, it, it can be really helpful to at least get an idea as to where you're sitting so that you know how to adjust too. Yeah, you know, Emily, I love that you brought this up because think about this, right? I want to just get your take on this and tell me what you think. But, you know, there's, this, there's a lot of talk in, in mine and your industry about, you know, the idea that we should be intuitively eating, that we shouldn't count things, that we shouldn't measure macros, that we shouldn't do those things. And it's usually coming from individuals who had a pretty long history of doing that stuff. And my take on that is that at some point as part of this is a journey, it's a process. There, it's almost impossible to eat intuitively without a time frame or a history of measuring stuff and watching calories and knowing what you're putting in your mouth. And so I do think that counting and measuring and those kinds of things, it is, a, it is useful for a period of time so that you can get a sense, for example. I know, I know just from you know, the amount of times I've measured things on a gram scale and things like that, which I don't do anymore, but I know how many calories a bagel has, and I know exactly how many calories a typical chicken breast has. And I know exactly, you know, um, I, I just know these things. How do I know them? It, it, because I have spent time measuring this stuff on occasion. The point, though, is, is that what we do, and I think, you, you know, here's what I wanted to ask you. I think this is what you're saying. The, the point is this, yes, we do have to still watch calories, but there's two ways to do that. One way to do that is, in my opinion, to fine, start out counting calories. Let's say I weigh 225 pounds, let's give me a severe calorie deficit, you know, so let's say, Jade, you're gonna eat 2,000 calories a day. Perfect, doesn't matter, I start counting that. Now, what matters is I have to see, is it stressing out my system? 
If I start getting hungry, if I start getting energy lows, if I start getting cravings, that means that it's too low and I need to adjust. Or I can intuitively eat, wait until I get results or not, and in a week, just go back and be like, well, let me get a sample day and see how many calories I'm taking in. So there's, you can either have a calories first approach or a calories second approach, but you do have to attend to calories. And I'd be interested in, you know, sort of your approach with that as well and your thoughts on that. Yeah, and, and I think that's a great point because I, I typically don't recommend that women start counting, but I also hate the term intuitive eating. I actually never use it in my own business because I feel like it implies that it should already be known. When in fact, most people, like this is an education. This is, people are, are often starting at the bottom, working their way up with this information. A lot of this is, is totally new to them. And you know, you're not gonna jump on Google every time you eat a meal and go, okay, well, how, much, how many calories does this bagel have? Or how many mm -hmm. grams of carbs or whatever? Like we're not gonna do that, it's just not logical. So if you're, if you're going to, to start counting, I think that it is great to get a base point. It's, it is tricky with some women in particular, I find, because of like body image issues and stuff. Mm -hmm. So that can be a slippery slope. But I really don't like this idea of intuitive eating in terms of we should already just all know how to eat and that's the end of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think you and I are in the same place. It's sort of this go between. It's like be very careful of being a strict calorie counter and being stuck on that because that can get you stuck. But also be aware that strictly trying to eat intuitively when you have no, you know, sort of experience with food also can get you in trouble. I'm totally on, on board with that. Here, here are a couple pointers I think I can give people listening to this to sort of understand what Emily and I are talking about here. What you have to understand is that you have a unique metabolic expression. And what I mean by that term is that if I eat a bagel and Emily eats a bagel and you eat a bagel, we will, we will each have a, a certain hunger response. Maybe I'll be hungry again in an hour. Maybe that lasts four hours for Emily and maybe it's six hours for you. We'll each get a certain amount of energy from that. We'll each release our own amount of insulin and things like that, right? So that bagel, which is about 300 calories for a typical large bagel, can end up satisfying Emily, and she may not eat any more, and she may just eat normally throughout the day. But for me, as a result of having that bagel, maybe I get a craving for pizza later, and maybe I end up eating 1,000 calories more as a result of eating that bagel versus Emily had the bagel and it was not a problem. And these are the things that you need to kind of understand. So you have a unique metabolic expression. You also have unique psychological sensitivities. If I'm at work and I have a deadline, I'm gonna respond differently. Maybe I have appetite suppression. Maybe Emily gets hungry and craves chocolate. Maybe you want something. You need to understand that, pay attention to that. And finally, we all have our own personal preferences. Some people are math people. They want to know what are the macronutrients, what are the calories. Some people do not want to think about that stuff at all. These are things that you need to know. And so in a very real sense, you're moving from a dieter or you should be moving from being a dieter and following rules and listening to, you know, you know expecting someone like myself or Emily to just give you everything you need and instead start becoming more like what I call a metabolic detective, which means you are looking at everything you're doing, diet, exercise, mindfulness, and movement-wise, and saying, hmm, isn't that interesting? I had this response. This did this for me. I know people, Emily, I don't know about you, but I know people who can wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee with a donut. Now, I'm talking about a big donut, right? The, the worst you know, breakfast you could possibly have. And then they're fine. They have a salad for lunch. They eat a normal dinner. And they're fine and they look good and they train and they're, they're happy and they're healthy. I know other people who do everything right. They wake up and have egg white scrambles with oats and blueberries and organic smoothies and, you know, wild caught salmon and all of this kind of stuff. And yet they're failing miserably. And all I would say to that is that we each need to understand what is important for us. And the only way that we can do that is by paying close attention. When we eat breakfast or don't eat breakfast, what does that do to our hunger, our sleep, our mood, our energy, our cravings, our exercise performance, our exercise recovery? When we do that on a regular basis, do we lose weight? Does our libido go into the tank? Like what happens? And most people are not looking at things that way. So I would say, yes, 
sure, if you want to track calories and do that kind of stuff, do it, but understand that it can become a crutch. But more importantly, start paying attention to the reactions that your body has to the inputs you're subjecting it to. And this is one of the problems that is that I feel like a lot of people have lost touch with how to listen to their body, how to identify that type of biofeedback. And a lot of people might be going around kind of feeling like garbage to the point where they, they aren't even able to pick up on that until they make some changes first because they're just used to feeling a particular way. They've sort of plateaued there and they don't remember feeling anything different at that point. Yep, absolutely. And in that case, that, that you know, I, it's funny that you said it because I have, this happens all the time with some of my most obese and sick clients who uh, were diabetic back in the day. Um, one of the reasons that the keto diet, and you know, I don't know how many of you remember Dr. Atkins and the Atkins diet, but one of the, re- one of the things that people don't know about him and the keto diet is that that diet was being used for morbidly obese type 2 diabetics, and it is very um, powerful for that. But it takes about three to five days, and it's tough for, for, that, for those people to start feeling better on a diet like that. And um, oftentimes, coming off of it's tricky, too, because if they come off of it, it actually can end up causing you know, some rebound binge eating and things like that. But the point is that it is true that sometimes when people feel – really bad. They do need to stick to something for a while and, uh, you know, kind of lift, come, come out of that metabolic fog. And so one of the things that I can help you understand here is that different programs, it's not that I'm saying you shouldn't do different programs. Like, you know, I have programs, Emily has programs, many people, you can follow many different people who have good programs they develop from working with lots and lots of clients. And um, what you want to do is you want to immerse yourself into those programs, try them right? Maybe try a keto approach. Maybe try a a fasting approach. The trick to remember, though, is that what you're actually doing is trying to find what works for you. You're not trying to find the right diet. What you're doing is you're trying to create a diet for yourself by trying different things and seeing, oh, that works. Oh, that didn't. Um, One of my favorite philosophers is Bruce Lee. I mentioned this a lot. He has a quote. I don't know if you guys know Bruce Lee. He, He basically developed his own type of martial art. And he developed that martial arts by looking at all the different types of martial arts and learning those and then taking the best from those. And he has a, a, a thing that I think applies to diets, too. He basically says, absorb what is useful, discard what is not, add what is uniquely your own. And so imagine you are essentially the Bruce Lee of dieting programs, and you're trying each one. You're learning kung fu, and you're learning jujitsu, and you're learning taekwondo. And then you're essentially saying, you know what, I'll take the kicks from taekwondo. I'll take the rolls from jiu-jitsu, and I'll take the strikes from kung fu, and I will have my own program that I have built just for me, that works for me, that was built by me, for me, rather than what most people do, which is just program around, and they say, that didn't work, I'll try this thing, that didn't work, I'll try that one, thinking they're going to stumble across the holy grail of diets, that it's just going to be the Shangri-La, and they're going to fix everything. The best way that I can say to do this is to continue to do these programs from an educational standpoint. Like you're, you know, like right now, maybe you're in elementary school and, you know, you got you to gotta graduate to high school, then graduate to college, then get your master's, and then get your PhD. Emily and I have been through this process for ourselves and we teach this process, but you need to go through it. In my opinion, everybody who is successful eventually comes to that aha moment where they're like, oh, I see. I have to build a program for me, by me, that works with my metabolic expression, my psychology, and my personal preferences. And that's the only way it will ever work. That includes calorie counting, great. If it's more intuitive, great. If it includes carbs, great. If it is all high fat and low carb, great. But make sure you're not doing it because some guru told you. Make sure you're doing it because you discovered it for yourself. Yes, for sure. And really paying attention to how you're feeling when you're doing it. I want to bring it back quickly um, to, to stress because I did have one question that cortisol is really villainized these days. And that what people forget is that we do actually need some cortisol. But most of us, unfortunately, because we're sort of living in this state of high stress, a lot of us is that we're, we kind of have too much. So that's how it ends up getting villainized. But what kind of stress is good stress? And when are sort of, when are there times to pack on good stress and what kind of biofeedback would be enough to tell us to back off all or as much stress as possible? 
Yeah, I love this because I love that you asked this question because the truth of the matter is just going and doing nothing but rest-based living and relaxing all the time does not challenge you. And so we have to challenge ourselves. And so the idea is what we want to do is expose ourselves to enough stress, but not too much stress. So then the question is, okay, there is use in research, they call it use stress. It's positive stress. It's stress that is just enough to make our body stand up and notice but not so much to overwhelm it. And so here's an example. Let's take two workouts. One workout you do, and during the workout, you are just crushed. You're like, you know, the whole time you're bent over breathing, you feel like you're just getting slammed, and after the workout, you are exhausted. Matter of fact, you're so exhausted, you have to go home and take a nap. And then the next day, you don't feel like working out because you're just so beat up, right? You're just like, oh my God, I'm so tired. That is an indication you went too much. A workout should leave you relaxed and energized. You know, it's funny. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I know people are going to laugh at this, but I'll bring it back to sex and orgasm. <laughs> Not kidding. Think about what happens after a workout. A good workout is almost orgasmic in a sense. Even Arnold Schwarzenegger joked about that, right? It's like you're relaxed and you feel euphoria. It's almost like a sense of awe. It's that feeling of climbing a mountain and exerting all this effort and then sitting at the peak and looking over and just being like, Ah, this feels so good. That is what you want to feel post-workout. That's how you know that the workout was enough because you really pushed hard during the workout. It wasn't like you were having fun during the workout, but you had enough at the end to be like, oh, I feel so good. And then after the workout and into the next day, you got high energy and it actually makes you want to eat better and you just feel good. Right. Versus I am just completely wiped out. I don't have this awe feeling or this relaxed, energized feeling. I have this exhausted feeling or this wired but tired feeling. And those are the indications that your workouts are doing too much. So with working out, what you want to do is you want to look for that feeling. Now, with food, it's really interesting, right? Because with food, what you want is the same kind of thing. It's, it's uh, you know, the Japanese have a name for it. I think it's Harihachibu, which essentially means eat to 80% fullness and uh, not more than that. We all know what it's like when you overstress, when you overeat. But we also know what it's like to have steak and a little bit of potato and some broccoli and a couple bites of a nice chocolate mousse and then a few glass, a few, like a glass or two of wine and go home feeling light, right? And feeling like that meal was amazing. I love the taste of it, but I feel light. I'm ready to wake up in the morning and work out versus the meal that you're stuffed, you can't fit into your pants. You have to like, you know, change into your pajamas and just sit on the couch and hope your food baby goes down. And then you wake up the next morning and your joints ache and you feel so tired as a result of the food you ate. So you can have wine, you can have desserts. You want to basically have some of this stress enough, plus it's enjoyable, but not too much. And you can push hard and you can train hard and you can do it frequently even. So long as your workouts are leaving you feeling this sense of relaxed, energized awe. Now, I have one tool that I'll give you that is uh, useful for most people if you want a more objective sense of stress in the metabolism, and that is heart rate variability, which we now can get on our iPhones because we all have devices, and you can get a heart rate variability app. I use one. Um, I'll look at it right now. It's HRV for training. <laughs> yep, HRV for training. Exactly. So that's the one I use. I like that one. I used um, the BioForce one for a little while, but I don't like the strap. I like just putting my finger on it. And what happens is this will measure, without going into the science of it, what it will do is essentially giving you a measure of the sympathetic parasympathetic balance um, because your heart, believe it or not, is the heartbeat is uh, controlled by the balance of the autonomic, parasympathetic, and sympathetic nervous system, how stressed out you are, how relaxed you are. This HRV can also tell you. I like to use it um, because sometimes, you ever have that feeling, Emily, where you go to the gym and you're just like, oh my God, I do not want to be here today. Like today I had that. Then oh, I went totally. to the gym, right? <laughs> and then I had a great workout. I actually crushed it today, right? And you get a PR and you're like, how did that happen? And those then are the other best days, days. <laughs> aren't those the best days, right? And then there's the days, the other days where you're like, oh my God, I feel great. And then you get in the workout and you're like, oh, I feel horrible. Yeah, and HRV <laughs> can, heart rate variability can sometimes tease that out a little bit for you if you're someone who needs 
a little bit more objective help with this. Cause you might be sitting here listening to me and be like, Oh my God, Jade, like all this is so subjective. It's all about the way you feel. I don't know if I like that. Cause my personal preference says I would like more objective data. I want to know my calories. I want to know my macros. I'd like to have some objective indication of, of if I am stressed. Well, we finally have something that will tell us if we're overreaching or overtraining. HRV, heart rate variability, is that tool. And so I think it's a really good tool. I will give everyone a caveat though who's listening to this. It takes some time to get a baseline with this. And so you have to stick with it. This isn't something you can do for a week. This is something that you do every morning. And over time, you'll start really understanding, oh my God, that bottle of wine I had last night either made a difference or didn't make a difference. In other words, made me feel like crap and perform like crap, or wow, it didn't push me over the edge, right? It's, it, was, it was something that I can get away with. And, and, and that's how you start learning, right? We all have girlfriends and guy friends and people we know who seem to enjoy food, not police themselves constantly, look good, feel good, and function great, and live longer. And that's where we all want to get to. And I think what Emily and I are talking about today really will help you get there if you start paying attention. Heart rate variability is a good, a good way to do that. And I'll say one more thing just from the mental standpoint, if I can. It's very much like I have something that I call a fear PR, which essentially in, in uh, strength and conditioning, a PR stands for PR, personal record. It just means when you do a lift that you couldn't have done before, you perform your best in a workout. We need to challenge ourselves mentally that way too. Um, for example, if we're afraid of water, maybe we want to get on a jet ski. If we're afraid of being alone, maybe we want to go out and eat alone. If we are you know, sort of set in our ways, maybe we want to travel and expose ourselves to different ideas. This is another positive stress. We need change and challenge in our brains and in our bodies for our body to respond and get better. What we don't need is excessive change and challenge constantly, which will push us over the edge. Well, and this just leads into my, my last question, uh, and, and you've just been so incredibly generous with, with your time today. Thank you so much. Is that I, if you could offer people one piece of advice on growing into the best possible version of themselves, what would it be? Uh, to me, this is, this is a very easy answer, and it essentially is this. And um, you'll have to follow me a little bit here, but we as humans, we all have, every single one of us, does not matter, we have deep pains, deep wounds, deep regrets, um, things that hurts, griefs, heartbreaks, um, loss of friends, uh, you know, loss of jobs, loss of careers, all these things. And a lot of these things, a lot of us, what we will do is we will either um, disregard them, try to put them away, try not to think about them. Time has, you know, just put them away. Maybe every once in a while we wake up with a dream or something and it, it takes us back, but we try to avoid those things. You know, an example would be to give you a real world example, let's say there's a, I don't know, there's a professional downhill skier that is, you know, just tearing up the slopes and, and then she, you know, gets or he gets injured. And what will we all say? Get back on the slopes, right? Well, most of us humans, we don't. We don't do that. We basically avoid the pain. And this is a very stoic sort of philosophy. It's basically to take that pain, that hurt, to revisit it and to grow from it and to make meaning out of it. To give you a real world example of this, I'll give you a, a story from my own life. So I, I uh, my best friend, by the way, is my ex-wife, Jill. Jill Coleman, maybe some of you know her, Jill Fit. So we used to be married. I had an affair, very embarrassing thing for me. I fell in love with another woman. Very tough thing, horrible for Jill, obviously. There's a lot of, a lot of us will have um, a lot of, um, how do you say, uh, we will um, judge, and I judge myself with this. Now, I could have done one of two things. I could have run away from that, tried to avoid it, just tried not to you know, make the mistake again or beat myself up or any number of things. But what I did and what other people who are successful in growth did is I essentially said, how can I make meaning out of this? How can I take this and turn it into something good for my own growth or for the growth of my nieces and nephews, or for the growth of my followers, you know, or just be kinder and more honest. And what I did as a result of that is I basically made honesty a religion of mine. 
Now my friends, most people that you know would be like, that dude's the most honest person I've ever met. And it make, made a difference for me and it made a difference for the world. And I would say that that is the stuff that we need to essentially look at and then decide, I've been avoiding all this pain perhaps. What am I gonna do with it? How am I going to grow from it? And especially, how am I going to leave the world a better place as a result of it? And to me, you know, this is getting away from obviously um, metabolism at first glance. But the truth of the matter is the people who are the happiest and the people who are most resilient to stress, now we're coming back to research, are people who have deep purposeful meaning behind what they are doing, right? So that's, that's that whole statement, you know, a strong why to live for will allow you to deal with any how, right, or what, or, you know, any, in other words, any, I, just, I said that wrong, but in other words, any pain that you have can easily be dealt with if you have a strong meaning behind. And ask any mother this, right? Like, you know, I, I talked to my sister about this. She's like, yeah, raising two boys is miserable. It's painful to the bone at times, but it was also the most enjoyable thing I've ever done and the most growth enhancing thing I've ever done because that's her meaning to raise these boys, right? And we don't oftentimes think about turning our pain into a source of deep meaning. And I think that is ultimately what we humans are doing here on the planet in a sense, but we all miss it. Well, that is incredibly powerful. And I actually had the, the pleasure of uh, watching you speak in Asheville last year about your, your next level human program, which is uh, kind of goes into some of the things that, that you were just talking about. So where can people find you? Where can people find uh, all of your vast knowledge of information, your next level human program, all of, all of those things? Yeah, you're so sweet. Thanks for asking. Um, probably the best place to get me is on Instagram at Jade Tita. Um, just fair warning that you'll get a little bit of my full personality on there. I have a little bit of four-year-old humor that sometimes <laughs> shows up on my, on my uh, stories and things like that. But I like Instagram because it's just easy. Uh, it's where I spend a lot of my time. And I do a mix of sort of some of my mindset stuff and some of my metabolism stuff and things like that. I also have a website, jadetita.com and Facebook at Jade Tita. But I think Instagram's probably right now the easiest place for people to find me, and I like to connect with people there. And you have your own podcast as well. I do, I do, yeah. I've been getting a lot of customer support feedback. Like, I've been traveling, so I haven't done one in about a, a month or so. <laughs> people are just like, <laughs> That's um, okay. Still all yeah. kinds of good stuff over there. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, but I'm, I'm definitely planning on doing that. I love, Jill always makes fun of me. She's like, um, how come you don't tell anyone about your podcast? Like, you got to promote yourself more. So, so yes, I do have a podcast. Thanks, Emily, for mentioning <laughs> Well, I will, I will promote all that for you because there's amazing information there, and I will obviously link all this in the show notes. But Jade, just you've been incredibly generous with your time and your knowledge, and thank you for for sharing so much of yourself, so much of your life, and uh, and honestly, just you're an incredible teacher, and I think that you have a huge amount to give, and uh, people really recognize that about you, and, and it's a huge gift of yours. So thank you so much. Yeah, I so appreciate that, and thank you so much for your work as well. It's like we have a lot to do, so I'm, I'm glad to know we're doing it together. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I definitely wasn't kidding when I promised how much information was packed into this episode. And I hope that you got as much out of it and learned as much as I have from Jade, both from this interview and just from over the years. He He's a great person, an incredible educator, and a really, really great teacher. And he has so much amazing information to offer. So for anything that Jade referenced in this episode and for where to find Dr. Jade, all of those things, everything can be found at roomtogrowpodcast.com. And most importantly, if you could share this episode with somebody who needs it, with, with somebody who you think would really appreciate it and be able to use this information, that would be incredible. We need to, to get the word out there for all of these amazing things to as many people as we can. And it would make my day, personally, my day, absolutely even better if you could take a screenshot and tag me on social media, on, uh, on Instagram, especially at, at Emily Goff Coach. And I would love to connect with you and to thank you for listening and to get your, to see your beautiful face. So definitely go hop over there and do that. And I'll see you back here next Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening to the Room to Grow podcast today. Can you do me one favor though? Can you take a screenshot of this and tag me on social media? I would absolutely love to see who's listening and get to connect with you. 
And if you wouldn't mind leaving a review on iTunes, that would make a huge difference. It's really important to have those, those reviews so that we can get the word out there about the podcast, get more amazing guests on and get as much information out there as we possibly can together. Looking forward to growing with you.